Hello, I'm Mike Baselli, your host for this podcast and the global community that has rallied around it. During this episode, I'm honored and grateful to bring a professional storyteller onto the podcast and for him to share his very personal experience of loss and triumph and the importance of his work for many of us desiring to create real, lasting change. Patrick James Lynch is the CEO of Believe Limited, a group of expert global storytellers deploying around the world to capture, cultivate, and translate the human story for the audiences their clients serve. While together, Patrick shared his personal bouts living with severe hemophilia A and why he dedicates his work and mission of Believe Limited to the memory of his brother Adam, who was also born with the same condition, but passed away at 18 of an intracranial bleed. Patrick has already changed the world for people with bleeding disorders and chronic illness, their families, and countless visionaries who aspire to produce entertainment to affect change. It is because of creative artists and passionate leaders like Patrick that I know we can move the health of our nation forward through the power of story, connection, and community. Welcome to Passionate Pioneers with Mike Baselli, where we highlight and speak with the innovators, the game changers, and the pioneers who are deeply passionate and relentless in solving the problems our world is facing today. This is your opportunity to connect with and learn from these leaders and to support them on their mission. Perhaps they will soon be hearing your story as well. This is Passionate Pioneers with Mike Baselli. I look forward to having you on this journey with us. Patrick, welcome to our podcast, and thank you for taking the time to be with us today. Mike, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's an honor to have you on the podcast, and your story is a heartfelt one, and your company's mission is needed now more than ever. I'm looking forward to our community to hear your very personal and touching story and journey and how it has led you to create entertainment to affect real, lasting change. But before we dive into your inspiring work, Patrick, a bit of housekeeping. While listening to any of our episodes, please make sure to join our free online community at passionatepioneers.com in order to share feedback and ideas and to interact with the global ecosystem. If you're listening to this episode via our online community, thank you for being with us. And lastly, please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast. You will automatically receive episode updates in your podcast player. Simply search Passionate Pioneers with Mike Baselli and Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Okay, Patrick, before we dive into your inspiring journey and advocacy work, let's take a moment to break the ice a bit so our community can get to know you. I'm going to randomly select here. Let's see what it comes up with. Ooh, what's one thing that you love to do outside of your work at Believe? Great question. One thing that I love to do outside my work at Believe, you know, the last number of years hiking, actually, since I moved to Los Angeles, making use of hikes and long walks and just being outdoor in a more kind of casual way, not for me, you know, I grew up in Queens, and I went to school in New York, in Boston for college. I grew up in urban and then kind of sprawling suburban environment where going for a hike wasn't really part of my day to day. And then moving to Los Angeles and living around so much beautiful topography, I really came to enjoy that. And I also physically was able to get my body healthy enough where I could do that. And we'll probably get into that a little bit later. Since I got my puppy, Russell, I have to say that one of my favorite things to do is not only go out on a long walk or hike by myself, but to do it with my four-legged buddy, Russell. Oh, I can't wait to chat about Russell here in just a moment, but coach me up a bit. So I did live in Northern California for a number of years while going to school there, Patrick. 
But when I think about, and I have spent time in Southern California, but when I think about living in Southern California, I hear, oh my God, 20 plus million people, there are people everywhere. It's concrete jungle. How easy is it to access open land to hike? I mean, here I live in Colorado and I have the Rockies in my backyard. How easy is it to access hikeable terrain out there? It's fairly easy. You know, there was somebody who kind of compared New York and Los Angeles for me in a way that has been really helpful. And I've repeated it to a number of people and it strikes me now. It's kind of a funny story too, is when I first started spending time out here and a friend asked me if I'd accompany her to it on a dinner date with a girlfriend who's having a birthday and her boyfriend at the time. And I was like, sure, yeah, absolutely. So just the four of us. Well, it turned out the boyfriend at the time was Joss Whedon, the film director. And I didn't realize that, nor did I know what he looked like. So it was one of those conversations where it really wasn't until we were into it for a while that I was like, this guy does some stuff. I should really be paying attention. And little by little, I figured out who I was talking to. And when he got interested in what I was doing, and I just started spending time in Los Angeles, and I was telling him, I'm loving Los Angeles. I like being outside more. I like the access to canyons and parks and the beach and the weather. But New York, there was a lot of energy there. And I have some great tent poles there. And I have some work going. And I've built some equity as a producer and someone who's trying to build a career there. So I'm a little stuck as to how to split my time. And what he said was, I am born in New York. I spent my first 20 years of my career in New York. And I spent the last 20 out here in Los Angeles. New York will motivate you. LA will stay out of your way. And I have yet to hear a better way of distinguishing at least those two cities from each other in terms of their energy, the day-to-day experience of living in it. I think that nails it. So yeah, there's plenty of opportunity in Southern California, but it is a very congested city and it's very intentional. So I said about casual hiking, depending on where you live, I suppose. Fortunately, the weather's nice enough that if you're outside, it's generally a nice day. If you just throw a dart on a day of the year in Los Angeles, it's probably a nice day. But you do have to be intentional about your activities for the day in a way that New York, you did not have to be intentional. New York could just kind of one thing could stumble onto another and some really incredible spontaneity could be born out of that. Nah, not so much in Los Angeles. So that is one downside, I would say. I love it here. I love it. I'm sold. Well, if you ever find yourself heading over towards Colorado, let us know. Plenty of us can help you out with some amazing trails here in the Rockies. It's incredible. But I do have to ask what, for some of our community, this will be the most important question of our entire time together. What kind of dog is Russell? (laughs) He is an Australian Labradoodle. So he is part lab and part poodle. Oh, how cool. We may have to publish a picture of, of Russell in this episode as well. So I'll ask your team, maybe we'll have to send a picture over for Russell and having him involved there as well. So, well, thank you for sharing that, Patrick. I do appreciate it. I'm looking forward to diving in. Here you are with Believe, a national leading brand, a Webby award-winning full-service content agency and production house. And you've been at it for almost eight years, but there's a story behind that. And I want you to be able to go back, share that very personal and intimate story as to the why and really surrounding the work for the memory for your brother, Adam. Can you take us back, set the stage a bit, and then we'll take it into current state of what's happening with Believe and the wonderful work that you've been bringing to so many around the country and the world? Sure, Mike. Thanks. I appreciate that. So to start, I went to college for theater and specifically for acting. And a little backstory there. So I have severe hemophilia A. It's a blood clotting disorder. My liver does not produce one of the proteins that's involved in the clotting process. So when a blood vessel bursts, which actually happens in capillaries and small blood vessels all the time, 
there's an automatic process that kicks in to repair those blood vessels and life goes on. And unless you're having a big injury, you never even know those things take place. Well, if you have hemophilia, missing one of those factor proteins, as they're called, it's kind of like dominoes. You pull that one out and the rest of the system falls apart. So because of that, and I had a lot of complications growing up as a kid, I loved sports. As I've talked about already, I really identify with being physical. I like using my body. But unfortunately, I was born with something that made that very challenging. So at the end of my high school time, I found theater in a very happenstance way, which we may or may not get to, but it led me on this different course. So then fast forward, I went to this great conservatory acting program at Boston University. It was extraordinary education for life in the theater and acting and understanding myself as a communicator, which I've used in large part now also as an advocate. And I had opportunities right out of school. I was working. I had agents. I went to summer stock. I had my first feature film in not too long. So I was doing all the things you're supposed to be doing if you're pursuing a life as an actor in your early 20s. Unfortunately, it was in April of the year I graduated college for context, that's 2007, that my brother from an untreated and undiagnosed head bleed passed away in his sleep. Completely shocking. So as you may imagine, that was a devastating turning point in my life. And one of the things that it led me to think about in the years that ensued was what happened to him because he had the same thing I did, severe hemophilia A. He got complacent with his self-care and that played a role in his death. But when I was over the initial just grief and shock and starting to pick up the pieces, the question that plagued me was what happened? What happened to him that he let those self-care practices go when we grew up in the same house, same registered nurse mother, same expert hematologist, same, 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 same. What happened? So I started spending a lot of time paying attention to what the hemophilia world was doing to educate and engage young people. And frankly, what I found was they just weren't doing much, at least not much that was actually interesting. If you were a dynamic 13, 14 year old and someone's trying to get you to pay attention about this kind of scary health thing, it just seemed like there was a giant open space. And I thought, I have something to add here, because right now what I'm seeing is we all acknowledge there's a problem with young people and there's a problem as teens become young adults and staying consistent with care. But the tactics that we seem to be using are the same tactics that it seems like we've been using for a long time. So why are we expecting things to be different? And as I started getting more comfortable in that space and more comfortable with what I wanted to do as a storyteller and an actor and a producer... I started pitching how we needed to use entertainment a little bit differently. So this is 2010, 2011, and I'm walking around talking about content and web series. One of the most common questions that I got 10 years ago was, what is content? And I find that wow. very funny now, given the world we live in. But that was always, what is content? What do you mean by content? And little by little, people were listening to what I had to say. We need to create opportunities for young people to engage. And a great way to do that is lead with entertainment. And I would present YouTube metrics and metrics of who's on YouTube, what are they watching, for how long. And I painted a picture for how we could create a web series that would use comedy to pull in young people and young families, help them realize there's an element to this educational process that doesn't have to be so scary. There's an element of connecting to this greater community of support that doesn't have to be so intimidating. Here's a silly show styled after The Office where a guy that has hemophilia plays the goofy Michael Scott character. And we use these eight-minute episodes to teach you and your family important lessons about life with hemophilia. And we've been doing that now for going on season 10. We actually are releasing our 10th season, August of this summer, which is wild. So that was the first project directly born out of trying to reach people like my brother 
a few years ahead of when he unfortunately passed. At that moment where as a young person, a teenager starting to develop a real sense of individual identity, just making sure we're getting in there, reminding the young people you do have something that is life-threatening and it's critical. It doesn't have to be scary all the time, but you have to take care of it or else the worst case scenario is what happened to my brother. And the much more common scenario is that you're going to live a life with unnecessary amounts of irreversible pain and damage. And that's no joy either. So that was the very first project, the original inspiration. And I met with filmmaker Ryan Gielen first in 2010. I took him out in 2011 to pitch him essentially as my partner on this. Thankfully, he got it. And we've been on our way ever since. Well, thank you for that story and that background. But Patrick, I want to go back still and pull on a couple of the threads that you had mentioned. When you started diving in and you noticed uh, there's lack of education and, oh my gosh, how do I learn about this? And where you're kind of focusing on is chronic in the rare health space right. and more specifically within hemophilia. But did you also start uncovering that there was just a systemic problem writ large across all types of chronic health issues or rare health diseases, not just hemophilia? That's a very good question. So I also grew up going to camps for kids that had various kinds of the umbrella term was life-threatening and chronic illness. So I grew up going to camps with kids who had sickle cell and spina bifida and spastic quadriplegic cerebral palsy and mitochondrial disease and HIV, which fortunately we don't see nearly in the same numbers in young people anymore. So as a kid, I kind of got this. And then as I got older and started doing the work I'm doing, I came to understand this in a more adult way. But there really is so much more that I believe chronic disease states have in common than they don't. And some of it has to do with the lived experience, the feeling like an other, the isolation that can come, the mystery and the questions that linger when an element of a diagnosis can't be pinpointed and treated effectively. And then there's the insurance stuff and the jobs stuff and all the practical stuff that kind of funnels very similarly for a lot of chronic disease communities. And then on the rare side, same sort of logic applies. Hemophilia, it is a rare disease, which the U.S. defines as any disease with a population of 200,000 people or less. Hemophilia presents about 1 in 10,000 live births. It's primarily in males, so it's about 1 in 5,000 male births or 1 in 10,000 total births, depending on how you want to frame it. So there's roughly 20-some-odd thousand severe hemophiliacs who we have diagnosed in this country. So it's a rare disease population. And rare disease communities, I have come to learn in the last three, four years in particular, also have a lot of the same sort of life considerations. One thing that is much different for hemophilia, and I think this is a critical point, 95%, actually a couple stats that are a little jaw-slacking in my opinion, one out of 10 people has a rare disease. I'll say it again. One out of 10 people has a rare disease. Wow. So if we aggregate the total rare disease community, we're talking about a population of like 37 million people, something crazy like that. So while they are each individually rare, the aggregate is extraordinary. Now, within that population, 95% of rare diseases don't have a single FDA approved medication. So what does that mean? That means pain. That means suffering. That means pediatric pain and suffering because in many cases, we're talking about kids, right? Like they come into the world and there's no medicine, there's no treatment. And with the life that can grow from there, it can be quite limited. Hemophilia is very fortunate. We have a lot of therapeutics that have been developed in the last number of years. And now this year in 2020, 
There is gene therapy. We already have gene therapy products out into the world, but there are some for hemophilia that are right on the precipice. And this will be a watershed moment in gene therapy for the rare disease community because the hemophilia community, because it's in that 5% and because our population size is on the larger end relative to all rare diseases, there's a lot of attention being paid to this imminent introduction of gene therapy for hemophilia. And I think the ripple effect through rare disease communities, because there's a lot of gene therapy work being done for rare disease communities, could be extraordinarily positive. So that's one way in which hemophilia is quite different, but I'm hopeful that that gap is going to shrink as gene therapy becomes more commonplace in the years to come. Well, thank you for that as well, Patrick. And then let's turn it a bit on the business side of the house, right? It's one thing, and I'm a big fan of artists, and by no means even close to where you and your team are at, but I try to hone my craft here with this podcast, but it's one thing to create content and it's one thing to have that creative mind. It's another thing to create a business around it in order for it to remain and maintain some sustainability around it. Can you share with our community how you became so sustainable with belief? How did you turn it into a sustainable business? Because I know you work with some of the most entrenched players in the industry that they're very wedded to status quo. This is how it's always been done. Just mm-hmm. like you said earlier, Patrick, what is content? What does this mean, right? How did yeah. you start finding an opportunity in the marketplace to create an actual and sustainable business? Great question. So picking up where I left off earlier on the white space that I saw or the blue sky that I saw for reaching young people and then the introduction of our web series. So when that hit and was clearly successful, there were people coming to Ryan and I asking, what are you doing next? What are you working on next? And that was my cue to start thinking about what we should work on next. There was no intention to start a business, which I'm very grateful for because I think the way we have grown has been quite organic as a result of just putting one foot in front of the next for quite some time until we realized we're all in on this. This is what we do now. Meeting needs, I know that's a bit generic, but one of the things we always start with, we have 20 to 30 programs, projects, films going at any given time at Believe Limited. And most of them start by addressing the question, what need are we uniquely well positioned to fill and be excellent at? And if we can identify those things and get excited about a particular angle on a project, a particular conceit for a story, or the way in which we can dynamically bring people together, another element of successful business for Believe Anyway, in my opinion, has been the ability to manage the nature of our multi-stakeholder projects. As you mentioned, we have a lot of partners who are a conservative end and a lot of our work's in healthcare and there's heavy regulation, a lot of do's and don'ts. And we try to push up against all the bumpers and guardrails to try to find where there might be additional elbow room and we get pushed back and it's a committed process, but we work pretty hard to make sure that we're not just taking the client's word and sort of shuffling that downstream and make sure we execute without any question, without any intention of challenging an idea. And sometimes I'm sure that has in the short term cost us, but I think what it's actually done in the long term, because we have grown, as you mentioned now for eight years, is it's let our clients and partners know that we really care and we protect the project first and foremost. And sometimes that means having to politely protect the client from themselves, having to politely redirect some energy on our side. And sometimes that means having to rethink the project. I mean, this year has been the year of rethinking the project. But if we go back to what is the need that we're trying to fill? What do all of the different stakeholders involved 
need to feel accounted for and to be able to view this as a success at the end of the day. And then the third piece of the list when we're starting something is, does it fit our mission, vision, and values? Does this align with who we are as a company? And sometimes as we go, projects do get stripped down of what made them interesting and exciting, what gave them their unique position in our mind. And that can be unfortunate. But a few years ago, my partner Ryan and I, we realized that's going to happen. And that is business. And if we are too precious at times, it's actually going to hurt the total body of our business. If we learn how to be strategic with the moments that we really try to fight and push uphill or swim like salmon, then we will do ourselves a better service than trying to fight for every nook and cranny of every project. So that's been very paramount, I would say, in how we've considered our growth and our projects and the way we've been able to build long-term relationships with these clients and our audiences that we serve as well. That's another important piece is just making sure who benefits from the work that we're doing. And it's funny how sometimes in all of the activity to execute, keeping in mind who the end user is, who that customer is, who that person is at the other end of whatever you're putting into the world, are you keeping them in mind as things bob and shift and move and weave? It sounds like common sense and it is, but it's so easy for that to get lost in the sauce. And then the last thing I'll say about what's given us our ability to succeed over the last eight years, we've been very slow to scale and to grow and to add overhead. We've kept ourselves as nimble as possible for as long as possible so that when that growth moment has hit, it hits us kind of hard and we react quickly. I will say that approach has kind of changed as we've now gone to a staff of over 20 people between our full-time and heavily committed part-timers. We pay over 125 people a year across all projects between employees and freelancers and contractors. So we're not quite as small and nimble as we used to be, but our ability to maximize that position for the first three, four, five, six years enabled us to be in the position we are in today with a larger operation without quite as much flexibility, but we're still pretty nimble. Well, for our innovators and entrepreneurs and company builders out there, some very sage advice from Patrick and then proofs in the pudding. I mean, some of their previous clients include names that we all know in this industry, the Pfizer's, the Roche's, Genentech's of the world, Verizon, Johns Hopkins, and seven, many others. And so there is definite proof points along the way for what Patrick and the team at Believe have been doing for all these years. But let's stay on that for a moment, Patrick. Here we are. We're now in the midst of one of the greatest health crises we will probably ever see in our lives, this pandemic with COVID-19. And when you talk about the needs of the client, I know a lot of us with our companies and our careers, we've had to shift to go and meet those needs in the marketplace, given everything at hand. What has changed for Believe? What has changed for you personally and also your clients during these trying times? You know, another thing to think about as we discuss this part with the pandemic, Patrick, is the need for connectedness and together is more apparent than ever. So what are some of those things that you've been experiencing during COVID-19? Yeah, what an odd time. And we're still in it. I think back to, I mentioned my acting school, theater school time and drama criticism and breaking down periods of great literary work. And you don't know you're in the modern era when you're in it. You don't know you're in the postmodern. Is this the Renaissance period? You don't know what you're in until you're in it. And the same is true with history, right? We don't know until there's some hindsight. We have no hindsight on this thing yet. We are still smack in it. And I've let go of trying to think too far ahead because it's clear that the ability to adapt and improvise and 
be as flexible is going to be important for a while. In terms of our clients and serving our audiences, because we're in content, I think we had a bit of a leg up. And because our social media and digital distribution is a large part of what we are able to offer, that really helped us have, again, a leg up. Pretty quickly, every other entity in the space, content entities, advocacy agencies, anyone or organizations rather, anyone who had a stake in our niche world suddenly became an online content creator, a live stream person. So there was a lot of noise to some degree, because as you said, everyone was looking for connectivity and ways to alleviate anxiety and try to share this experience with like-minded people. I actually expected us to ramp up our output more so than we ultimately did. We just got more specific about what our weekly podcast output looked like, the way we maybe repositioned a few of the upcoming live events we had so that they could all be virtual events. Where we were most impacted is that we are a production company and we had a number of shoots booked across a number of months for a number of projects, all of which had to be canceled and reconceived or pushed or managed in one way or another. That's been our biggest challenge because there's just really nothing that we can do about our ability to travel around. I mean, we've been to 20 some odd different countries around the world. We have a film coming out in August called Bombardier Blood that we filmed across all seven continents for. So we travel and that's been taken away. And that's a big part of our brand is this global ambassadorship that we bring with the content and messaging and engagement work that we do. But there's nothing that we can do about that part right now. So we have gotten more specific about what we're putting out online. We're working with our clients to try to create virtual events, to try to move certain deliverables or timelines to something more advantageous. What's helpful for us is we're well positioned in our space. So we're in active conversations with all of the big relevant players very often, daily at times as things are shifting and with it, our plans as a community shift. So. That's, I guess, the best way we've been able to manage this time. We have not had to let anyone go. We have not downright lost any projects, budgets and timelines and everything has been affected, but we haven't just lost anything outright. And unfortunately, I think we're going to have to continue to move this way for a little while longer until there's a greater ability to vision cast past six, eight weeks at a time. Yeah, that makes sense. And a lot of our peers out there and our colleagues within this industry are experiencing the same exact thing. So I hear you loud and clear, and, and I'm also personally experiencing that. So thank you for sharing a little bit of that insight, especially where we are with this pandemic, because you're right, it is changing by the week. And I think the best piece of advice from myself that I heard in there is we do have to remain a little bit elastic, a little nimble, and understand that just be okay with the dynamism that is this pandemic and react yeah. accordingly. So thank you for that. You know, Patrick, I think also something that is not going to change regardless of where this pandemic takes us is this notion that content is king. We hear that a lot, but I also think it's a layer deep beyond that. I personally believe it's authentic content, right? The end user, the consumer, the client, whoever you're serving that persona, they no longer care about your 30 second advertisement on NBC, right? They no longer care about, oh, you're crushing it. And oh, this is the bells and whistles and all the features and benefits. You need to bring your authenticity game to the plate every single time you step up. And so in regards to some advice that you might have or some insight, we do have an amazing community of executives 
that are part of our community that are helping lead some of the biggest organizations in the healthcare industry. What's some of your perspective and guidance around this notion of creating authentic content moving forward? I mean, I endorse what you just said, and I'll expand. We think empathy is an extraordinarily important part of what we do. There's this concept that a guy by the name of Timothy Morton coined called the hyperobject. And the hyperobject is this idea of something that's so large, so real that it affects absolutely everything. There's no way to escape it, i.e. COVID. But it's also so large and so big and so scary in some ways that there's really no ability for humans to translate that into meaningful action until something happens to change that. And that something, he would say, is an emerging property, an emerging entity of some kind. And what I believe that we are experiencing right now with COVID is this kind of hyper object time where it's so large, it affects everything, but we can't quite get our arms around it. And what we don't yet have is that emerging empathy driver that coalesces our energies that calms us down, that turns us away from pointing fingers at each other and turns us toward holding one another's hands and allows us to change our perspective on something that has been so overwhelming. How does that relate to authentic storytelling? Well, in both cases, I think the biggest ingredient is empathy. And in patient storytelling, I've been hearing about patient stories for a very long time. And yet I've also made my living in part by telling patient stories as though it wasn't happening before. What am I doing that's special? Is it this camera? Is that we give ourselves this amount of time? That's a little bit of a lot of things. But in my opinion, the single most important thing is empathy and that we care. I remember when I was just out of college, or maybe it was in college, I was very interested in greatness in my late high school and college years. What did it mean to be great? And I would look at these great men in sports and entertainment and business to try to learn, what are they doing? What do great people think about? What do, are there common trends in great people's lives? And I remember listening to, it was a CEO's convention and 500 people in this conference room and the guy on stage has all these credentials. And he's fielding questions. He's doing a good presentation. My dad had recommended I watch this. And I'll never forget, there was a moment and he had already said this a few times. So he answered yet another question by landing on the point you really have to care. And so many people were asking questions. In your second quarter, if your projections are off by this and that and that and that, and he'd start answering these questions from the granular level they'd be asked. But as he'd expand, he kept landing on, you just really have to care. And I thought, this guy makes a lot of sense to me. This guy helps me understand what a CEO actually is and how it's not that different than being a camp counselor or being a good castmate or a good teammate. It's really caring and everything else is some degree of learnable, but you can't learn how to care. And I think that applies to content. And now that there's so much of it and anybody who has a smart device and internet access is a content creator and the people for whom that are doing that, they generally only have their authenticity to lean on. So I think creating content that has a purpose, that uses human story, that drives empathy And that isn't just a repeat of something that you've seen before, because that often becomes something that we really have to fight with certain projects and certain clients as we go through the process is little by little, there's a temptation to pull something new towards something we've seen before. Then I have to jump in and go, no, 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 no. That's why you brought us in. That's why you brought us in because we didn't have this previously. And now we want this. If we go down that route, it might feel good right now, but I'm telling you, we'll be sad later. Unfortunately, over time, 
I've been able to build the credibility so that when I do make those claims, they're well received. Well, for our audience, I mean, that is sage advice and it's real. I mean, these are new times, whether you like it or not. Orthodoxy is completely blown up. The ways of doing things like we always did are done. We have to start thinking anew. We have to bring our empathy game to the table. We have to be vulnerable, raw, and real and understand that the end persona, the customer or consumer that we serve are wanting to know us more on a personal and intimate level and not just what your product or service can do. So let's continue to think about how do we involve those types of pillars in our business and make it a part of our business and pillars that we lean on daily to continue to move our businesses and our efforts forward. So Patrick, you guys live, eat and breathe it. You've proved it out for many years. So thank you for that advice for our community. And speaking of our community, let's flip the script a bit on you. Let's have our community help you out. What is one problem, need or question that you or believe have that our community can be contemplating or helping you with? I love this question. And depending on when someone asks, like, how can I help or what could I do? Sometimes I really have nothing specific to be able to offer. And it's frustrating. But right now I got something very specific. Oh, bring it. (laughs) So I mentioned earlier, we have a film about this, the first person with hemophilia to attempt to Mount Everest and all seven summits, which are the highest peaks on each of the seven continents, which you may know about as being a person in Colorado. In fact, the climber I'm speaking of is a Denver native himself. And he's a buddy of mine. He approached me years ago and said, Patrick, I know you're a filmmaker. I'm the climber with hemophilia. You're the filmmaker with hemophilia. I would love to do something around this climb I have of Everest coming up that could showcase both what is and is not possible when you have hemophilia, depending on your access to medication. So Chris is the same age as me, 35 years old this year. He's healthy. He has his challenges related to hemophilia, but he lives a good life. He's married. He's working, very physical, mountaineer, obviously. But unfortunately, half of all people born with severe hemophilia die by age 10. So depending on where you are in the world, depending upon that health system, depending upon a lot of factors, you may or may not have the access that enables a full and complete life. So Bombardier Blood is the name of my documentary that follows Chris on this journey. And I should add too, the seven summits, so that's Everest plus the other six tallest on the other six continents, that's only been accomplished by about 500 people ever, let alone somebody who has a severe bleeding disorder. So pretty ambitious attempt by Chris. And he did all of it while raising money and awareness for this organization that is solely dedicated to improving the lives of families affected by hemophilia in developing countries around the world. Chris has actually gone on to become the executive director of that organization. And so the film comes out on iTunes and it's available on Comcast Demand and Fandango now and a bunch of different places. As of August 18th, 20% of all profits go directly to Save One Life, that organization and their mission. And we're using the film to raise awareness about hemophilia, yes, but even more so to raise awareness about this disparity that exists and to just get people thinking about health disparities around the world through this particular intimate story of this one guy from Denver with a dream and a family and a community and seeing how he was able to consider what it would mean to do something extraordinary for anyone, let alone someone with severe hemophilia. So if anyone listening to this could rent, buy and share Bombardier blood, it would help Believe Limited. It would help save one life. It will help the international hemophilia community. We have Alex Borstein, 
from The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel and Family Guy as one of our executive producers. If you check out our social media properties for Bombardier Blood, you may see some videos from her making much the same pitch that I'm making now. So that's what I would say. If there's one thing you could come out of this doing, if you'd like to help us and save one life and the, really the global hemophilia community, go to bombardierblood.com, rent, buy, and share Bombardier Blood. And feel free, if you do, to reach out to me and let me know what you think. You know what, Patrick, that's an easy ask, right? We right now, if you want to give back to your nation during this pandemic, sit on the couch, right? Stay home, <laughs> social distance, right? If you want to be a true patriot, the best way to do that right now, sit on your couch. Well, you need some time to fill, you know, while sitting on the couch, bombardierblood.com. So go out there, find the new documentary with this amazing work that the team at Believe have put together. And of course, we've got that Denver tie as well. So that makes me proud. So we'll also leave some points of contact for the documentary over on our free global online community at passionatepioneers.com, where you can find more out about Patrick and all the work there with Bombardier Blood as well. So, and speaking of online, Patrick, where can we find you and the team, whether it be social media, websites, or otherwise, where can we find you? Yeah. So the simplest thing to do, I would say, so bombardierblood.com, that's not a bad place. There's widgets and contact links there. So if you go there, you can find your way to me, Patrick James Lynch, Believe Limited, our company. You can find me across all of the social channels, Patrick James Lynch. And then I have links to our various projects there. If you want to get an overview of what we do and kind of click around different visuals, different projects, just kind of get a better sense of what we're about. Believe LTD. So Larry, Tom, David, BelieveLTD.com. That will satisfy that curiosity. Excellent. Easy. Again, BelieveLTD.com. We'll also list all those other contact points out that Patrick just shared over at PassionatePioneers.com. So thank you for that. Well, we're getting ready to close it down here, Patrick. What an inspiring and insightful conversation with a lot of great lessons learned for us to apply to even our own daily businesses and what all of us are working on in various forms and manners. So Thank you again for being with us. But we have one more item to check off before we head out. And it's one of my favorite parts of the episode is a fill in the blank. I'm a passionate pioneer because? I am a passionate pioneer because not everyone has the same opportunity to make a difference. Wow. Brilliant. Well said and way to go on wrapping us up. So thank you for that. And again, Patrick, thank you for spending time with me on the podcast. But more importantly, Thank you for spending time with our community. I'm looking forward to having all of them get involved. It's in a wonderful global online community working hard to move the health of our world forward together. So again, with everything on your plate and how busy you and the team are, thank you for taking a pit stop here at Passion of Pioneers. We appreciate everything that you're doing and do keep us posted. And of course, tell Russell hello for us. <laughs> I will. Thank you. And just one last comment. I never intended to be a CEO of a company. I never intended to be an executive. I went to acting school, as I mentioned. And passion has really been that thing that's helped me move past insecurity and anxiousness and feelings of imposter syndrome as we've grown over the years. I guess I feel the need to say that because appreciating who your community is, I'm certain there are people out there like me who have felt or feel insecure about their title or responsibility or how do I lead my company or what do we do now? That's me in a nutshell too. That passion, mission, values, and vision. That's what grounds me. That's what brings me back. So if anyone out there is hearing this and that resonates, get that passion well in your belly, mission, vision, values, and that's something you can always come home to. And I just want to make that point before we signed off, Mike. <laughs> 
I love it. Thank you for that. What a great way to end. And don't be shy in reaching out to Patrick. They're doing wonderful work. So again, my friend, thank you for being with us. Welcome to our community. And we look forward to marching alongside you moving forward. Thank you very much. A pleasure. Thank you for joining us today on Passionate Pioneers with Mike Baselli. We'd love to hear your feedback about the podcast so we can continue to improve this community and to further support the pioneers being featured. Lastly, please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast and invite your friends and colleagues to join us. This is Passionate Pioneers with Mike Baselli. I look forward to having you back with us during our next episode.